glad we had a testimony from one of our missionaries because that's kind of our theme today. You know, we hear about them in church. They frequently appear on our prayer lists. We hang up pictures of them on our fridge at home. Um, We even have a church committee that's tasked with their entire care. Um, But we know they live off somewhere in the world, far away. Once in a while, we get to see them in person. They are not X-men. They are our rock stars in church. You know, they are the M-men, the missionaries. And churches are right to hold them up as an example because they mean a lot to the extension of ministry to a local church. It's kind of funny, though, what people think about missionaries. Some really do idolize them and don't realize they're folks just like us. Some look at them and say, I could never, ever be like that missionary. I could never do what they're doing. And yet that diminishes the work of the grace of God because God can take any sinner and do great things in their lives. Many just honestly don't know any missionaries up close So they don't really know what they're like, you know, to pinch them and see what's involved in their families, what goes on behind the scenes in their homes. But they're really just like other believers. Missionaries are. You know, they're just like us. At at one point uh, in in our situation, they were involved in a church in America. You heard uh, Hota's testimony, who was here. They heard the word of God proclaimed. It did something inside of them. They evaluated their own passions for life, what their spiritual giftedness was. They saw how God had providentially guided them through their life. They consulted with their spiritual mentors, kind of looked outside of themselves, and then they made a decision. And they were led by the Spirit of God, and they said, you know, I need to get some more training. I need to get more discipleship. I need to get ready. And so they took the training, they raised the funds, and then they headed off to their place of ministry with a ton of prayer support, churches standing behind them. And why did they go? To bring the gospel to a needier area, to help build up churches where churches were weaker, help establish stronger churches. Yes, missionaries deserve our full support. Concerning these uh, kinds of workers, I think the words in 3 John verses 6 through 8 kind of guide us about what we should be thinking about them. It says, 3 John, verses 6 through 8, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name. Of course, that's the name of Jesus. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers. Therefore, we, the church, the believers, ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. That's right. We want to be fellow workers along with the truth. And so that's why we ought to support missionaries. We want to extend the witness of Hope Bible Church to other locations in the world. After all, isn't that what we're told we will see at the end of the church age when you get a glimpse into the book of Revelation and you see in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, during the time of the tribulation, it says, Christ purchased for God with his own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then it goes on to say, you've made them, these purchased people, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Just because the church is weighed down with all kinds of concerns like we have now, here we are dealing with a virus and dealing with all kinds of other issues, 
doesn't mean we can't forget our missionaries. No, no, we cannot forget our missionaries. And so as we're coming into Acts chapter 13 and starting to enter into some of these missionary journeys of Paul, I wanted to dedicate this message to help us think a little bit more about what it is like to walk in the steps of missionaries, to learn the heart of what it means to be a missionary, because there's a sense in which all of us are to be a missionary every single day, as the children's song says, be a missionary every day. Uh, and we need to have the heart of a missionary for we're all on a mission. Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12 is our text. I'm going to read it, and then uh, we're going to learn a few things from here as well. Acts 13, verses 4 through 12. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the truth. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the first stop on what is referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. Though he's still being referred to here as Saul, and notice Barnabas's name comes first, which means at this point, Barnabas still has the lead. All of that changes on this first missionary trip. This passage contains many, but I would never claim to say that it has all the elements of being a missionary, but it gives us many elements of what it means to be a missionary, and as such, we get to learn more than a church history lesson here. We get to learn more than just about the expansion of the church onto the island of Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's a uh, it's more than that. It's a challenge for us to learn what missionaries go through, what missions work is really like, and how we can better support them. By the way, I have a challenge for you. Can you name all five of our missionaries that we support overseas and our one-time full American evangelist? Can you also name the med mission that we get behind each year? Can you name the one missionary that this church, Hope Bible Church, sent out so that this church is his home church. Can you name the country and the city all six are in? Well, if you could do that, my challenge is that's for starters. 
Then see if you can learn more. Do you know in your mind and your heart what are some of the key prayer requests that they want us pounding heaven's door about knocking until they receive? Do you know what some of those really important and key prayer requests are for each? So let's get to learn about missionary work better today so we can support our missionaries better. I found in here six elements of missions work that we can learn. Six elements. That's the outline. Write it down. Helps you to follow better. Six elements of missions that we learn here, and I'm going to give them to you as we go along. First, missionaries need a plan that's backed by a church. Missionaries need a plan for what they're going to do, and it needs to be backed by a church. That's in verse 4. Look at it. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So we'll stop there. They had an action plan. What do we see here? They were sent out by the church, right? The church at Antioch. We learned about them last time in verses 1 through 3. But verse 4 also adds they were sent out not just by the humans, not just by the church, but by who? The Holy Spirit, right? And that's good. The solid gospel preaching church has recommended them for the mission field, and yet this mission was first and foremost of the will of the Holy Spirit. So that's the right kind of start. Listen, people should never send themselves onto the mission field. They should never decide that they are ready to be a leader. If you are truly called by God, then you will be recognized and you will be sent by a church with a plan. That's just the way it has to be. That's how God works. That's how important the local church is and how the Holy Spirit works in our day and age. Missionaries have an inseparable relationship not just with one local churches, but often with many local churches. They have to candidate with them, help the other people to see what their heart is all about, what their plan is, what they want to do. They get vetted again and again. It's a hard process to go through, but it's a confirming process of their call and what they want to do. It makes the work that they get into more solid when they get there. They should work in tandem with churches and even represent those local churches in the places where they go. Well, this missionary team, and we can call them a team, headed for Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe because Barnabas was from Cyprus. Um, we know uh, that he would know the island well, and it's a large island, so his guidance on it would be helpful. I think it's the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Also, Cyprus was nearby where they were starting from in Antioch, their point of origin for this missionary trip. And they wanted to spread the gospel, so it makes sense to start at one of the closest places. So think about that. There is the word of the Holy Spirit, but there's also some common sense that's going on here. Let's start at one of the closest places. Let's bring the gospel there. If we want it reverberating out into other nations, let's start here. It's not been systematically brought through the island of Cyprus as far as they knew, although there were some believers on the island by this time for sure. They were going to preach it throughout all of the island. So their planning was not haphazard. They thought. They didn't just kind of go willy-nilly all over the place. They had a plan. Now in this plan, they used the customary travel of the day. They went to Seleucia, which was a port city. And why did they do that? Because they have to travel some 90 miles over water. And that's how things were done in that culture. You get your boat, you, you pay your fare, and you're on your way. Again, missionaries are just normal people, and they have to avail themselves of what is at their disposal. So they pay for the ship, they boarded, they dealt with life at the sea, then they arrived, 
and they took their travel step by step. Monies were probably provided for the travel by the home church. Prayers had already been sent up to Almighty God. Watch over them, give them traveling mercies, and then the men were working together as a team. By the way, teams in missions are very helpful and very important. Each person on the team brings something unique to the team. And so when you think about foreign missions, you need to think also about how people fit well together. What did they bring along with them? Well, we know they brought themselves. They brought their, their spiritual giftedness. They brought the gospel. Paul loved to have scrolls with himself as he traveled to study and writing materials. Of course, they would have brought adequate clothing and gear and maybe a few other things. They were not, notice though, loaded down with a whole shipload of goods or foods. Why not? Why didn't they arrive in the island of Cyprus with all kinds of ability to be able to help the poor and things like that? Well, because missions is not primarily about feeding the poor. Missions is not primarily about curing diseases or digging wells for water or solving social ills. All of those things are good, but they're not at the heart and center of missions. Missions is about proclaiming the gospel and starting churches among those who believe the gospel and appointing new leaders in those new churches that believe the gospel so that the new churches then will grow and mature, glorify Christ, worship him, and send out more workers and start more churches. It's a multiplication process. It is the design that God has for his church in this age. That is what you will see on Paul's missionary journeys over and over again. Don't miss that pattern of multiplying local churches or you will miss the wisdom of the strategy of missions for the New Testament time. All right, so they have a plan, a strategy. Second, missionaries also must have a proclamation. Look at verse five. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim, there it is, the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That verb, proclaim, is a common verb, katangalo. It means to, to you know, say something publicly and loud, almost like announcing something. That captures the main activity of missions. What is missions? It is a proclamation, a proclamation to proclaim or announce the word of God to those who have not heard it, that is what missions is all about. Of course, this is not a new activity for Paul and Barnabas. The apostles have already been doing this to the Jews back in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 2, it says they proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're busy proclaiming the resurrection. Later in this very chapter, chapter 13, Paul will add, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus' forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What a wonderful proclamation. Go out into the world and tell people that all of their sins they've committed, no matter how bad they've been, they can all be forgiven in the Jewish Messiah who's crucified on a cross to take away sins, risen from the dead to grant everlasting life. It's not a pipe dream, it's history. It's reality. And that's what they proclaim. They began doing it immediately. It was job number one. They hit the road talking and proclaiming. And they did it, as we'll see throughout the whole island. They did it to small people. They did it to the greatest person on the island, the proconsul. 
any ear that would be willing to listen, they gave it to. There was not some special group of people only that would get to hear the gospel. Everyone got to hear it. Notice, though, that they started in the synagogues. Did you see that? The synagogue was the religious and education center of every Jewish community. Synagogues were really developed during the time of what's called the diaspora. The diaspora was the dispersion of the Jewish people when God judged the nation of Israel and and removed them off of the promised land because of their incessant and stubborn idolatry. They got scattered among the nations and they remained in these enclaves, these communities, and they wanted to continue to learn the law of Moses and practice that in their lifestyle. And so these synagogues became the center of that life. And uh, they, they read the law of Moses in the synagogue. They read other Old Testament scriptures. They had visiting speakers that would expound on the scriptures. They would sing songs. They would have debates. Actually, it's, it's fair to say that the New Testament church's understanding of how to do their worship services came largely from how the Jews practiced their synagogue meetings. We took their pattern and brought it into the church. It was just all centered on Jesus as Messiah. And it is only right that the good news about the Jewish king, the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Savior is announced first to who? To the Jews, right? It's their kingdom that's going to bless the ends of the earth. The Gentiles or the Greeks are indebted to the Jews. Again, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greek sort of stands for all of the Gentile world. What did they proclaim? Answer, they proclaimed the word of God. Boy, I tell you as a preacher, that's the thing that gets me the most exciting is when I stand in front of you, I don't have to try to figure out each each week what I'm going to say. I'm not going to give you the word of Tom. I'm going to try hard not to do that. I'm not going to give you some philosophical jargon that maybe I happen to read throughout the week or some nonsense that is learned on TV. I can bring to you the word of God because it's written and it can be expounded upon and brought to the hearts and minds of of people. We are not to preach the word of men. We're not to present man's religions and man's false gods or man's philosophies. They came and they preached the word of God. Missionaries should never waste time proclaiming that which cannot change mankind, cannot change society. We see people get all excited about all these different movements to try to fix things right in the world. None of that works. It's all impotent. We have the word of God. Leave all of human wisdom for the foolish schools of the day. The, The church needs to be a place where the word of God is proclaimed because the other stuff changes nothing. The word of man is impotent. God's word is tried and true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is tested. John 10, 35, the word of God cannot be broken. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, the word of God performs its work in you who believe. Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. 2 Peter 3, 5, even the worlds in the universe were formed and created by the word of God. 
The spread of the word of God is the story of the spread of truth. The world is filled with darkness, filled with lies, filled with false religion. And along comes the word of God preached here and all of a sudden there are people that believe it and it pops up like little lights throughout the world and they come together and they form churches and then those churches start proclaiming more of the word of God and teaching deeper in the word of God. And that's the only place of the education of God's light and truth anywhere in the world. It's the only hope the world has. And you better believe Satan comes along after each one of these churches has started and he tries to find a way to snuff them out, to get them to start talking about anything but the Word of God. The spread of the Word of God is the story of the spread of Christianity. Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Acts 6.7, the Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 8.14, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Acts 11.1, now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And here you have Acts 13.7, Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Man, that is the heart of missions. Proclaiming and advancing and expounding upon teaching the word of God everywhere. Get rid of the philosophies of man. Get rid of the the lies of evil spirits. Bring us the word of God. And you know, when people receive the word of God and gather together, each church becomes a lighthouse to a dark world. Missionaries are sent out by churches. Why? To make more lighthouses throughout all of the world. That's what we need. The most important job and activity in missions is proclaiming the word of God and planting a church of believers. If you don't have that pattern, if you're not following that pattern, you don't have biblical missions. Third, The third element we see about walking in the footsteps of missionaries here is that missionaries need the right personnel. Still in verse 5, but at the end. They had two leaders, but it also says they had an assistant. It says John. That's John Mark. That's not John the Baptist or the Apostle John. That's John Mark, and he's one of their assistants. John Mark eventually would write the Gospel of Mark, so we know this man turned out well, but you see a little bit of a problem with him here. Paul and Barnabas certainly were the right men. They were mighty in the scriptures. They were insightful about how the Spirit of God had been opening up the gospel about the Jewish Messiah to the Gentile nations. They were both very dedicated men and well-motivated men. In fact, Paul wrote of his entire ministry later in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 17. He said, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. In other words, you can examine our hearts. Our motives are right. We're not after money. We're not peddling the word of God. We are here to proclaim it so that Christ and God will be glorified. With Paul and Barnabas, their doctrine was the same. You can't have a work of God where people are divided about their doctrine. Their approach to ministry was the same. You can't have a work of God where people are trying to accomplish two different things. They had actually worked together before. They had rapport. They trusted each other. That like-mindedness was key 
to establishing a work of such great magnitude as this. If you have folks on the mission field who are not properly motivated, it will hinder or could possibly even destroy the mission that they've started. Many missionary troubles start with other team workers who do not share the vision or the motivation of the vision of the mission. They do not know how to get along with folks on a team, and so they ruin the team. And that is why you must test missionary candidates at the home church with the home culture. Um, that's what Juan Moncayo was talking about in the video earlier. They have to be tested in their own culture first. They have to. If they do not have the habit of working under the authority of the church, or they don't easily come alongside other brothers and work well with them, then why would we send them off to places where conditions are more difficult and the pressures are harder and the accountability is less and then expect some different outcome? That is not wise. Missions is not a place for untested personnel. This church itself, Hope Bible Church, was really a mission when we got started. And it was only those who came and had the same commitment for the same kind of church that stuck with us and in the long run really were valuable to us in building this mission, this ministry. Many others proved to cause more harm than good. When starting Baltimore Bible Church, we looked for those who wanted to, to take it in the same direction as the calling that God laid on the heart of Pastor George Lawson. We had them actually incubate inside of our church for a year under his leadership that when they went out, they would all be going in the same direction, same doctrine, same motivation, same philosophy of ministry, learning to get along as a team. Like-mindedness is crucial among personnel in missions. Well, one negative example here, guys, right? John Mark. John was the provisional help. What was he doing? He was carrying the backpacks, <laughs> carrying the luggage, doing other things like that. Unfortunately, John ended up deserting Paul and Barnabas in verse 13. That was not good. To bail on missionaries in the middle of a missions movement, that's not good. By the way, please let it be seen when we idealize the early church and we think we have a problem in our church because people could not get along, that yes, even in the early church, they had to deal with personnel problems. I don't know of any mission or any church anywhere that doesn't have to deal with these kinds of things. They occur virtually everywhere, and they can cause lots of pro problems for a church or for a mission, even anguish of soul. Now, many people have speculated why. Why did he abandon them? It, it may have been that John Mark now saw how hard the work was. When people get a real glimpse of the sacrifices in missions, they may say, you know what, this is not for me, I'm turning back. It may be that he saw the dangers in missions work. Paul talks about dangers in his travels. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he wrote, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, and he goes on in the sea. Wow, a lot of danger. It may have been the lifestyle hardships or the financial sacrifices he knew he'd have to make. Some have even speculated that since John Mark was Barnabas' cousin, he didn't like the fact that it looked like Paul was kind of taking over the leadership and he was jealous. 
Later, Paul would refuse to take along John Mark on his second missionary journey. And because of this, Paul would lose his whole ministry team, including Barnabas. But God put together another team for Paul that proved, in his case, to be much more effective. You know, it is a real secret for praying for missionaries well. But often the hardest prayer requests a missionary cannot share because it involves their relationships with other people and they can't talk about it without appearing to be gossiping and tearing it down, but they suffer because the relationships are not right and the other person, it's, you can't get along with them. And they're going in a completely different direction and tearing down the work. You want to know a secret for praying for missionaries? Pray that God will work in the ministry team. It's crucial for their joy, for their even desire to remain on the mission field. And of course, for their effectiveness. Well, that's three elements. Walking in the shoes of missionaries. How does it sound? Does that sound like what you thought it was like? Let's go to a fourth element. Fourth, missionaries have to persevere. Of course they do. Look at verse six. And when they had gone through the whole island and as far as Paphos, dot, 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 we'll stop there. So they were thorough in their proclamation on the island of Cyprus. The pathway that they took took them through the whole island. They went everywhere that they could, followed every road they could. They went to the small towns and they went to the largest town. They became what Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament Chapter 52, verse 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Love that passage. Feet of those bringing good news, that was them. The goal of mission proclamation is to get everyone to hear, to gain a hearing, to give them a chance to believe. Well, that takes a lot of hard work, a lot of walking, generating ideas, persevering with those ideas until you see, God willing, some fruit come from your labor. This is the hard work of missions, the going, the walking, one step in front of another, sleeping in new places, being in insecure places, not knowing the language as well as you want, strange customs, then trying to secure a hearing. Who's even going to be willing to listen? In modern missions, we would include in that the development of multimedia presentations, the use of music. Some go the Christian schooling route to to begin to get entrenched in a community and proclaim the gospel, or summer camps, or caring for the sick, or delivering food, or digging a well. Many of these things are not the heart of missions, but they're the means for gaining the right to proclaim a message to the people, you see. You do whatever you can do to gain a hearing. Man, missions is hard work. It is labor. It is not for the weak of heart. Missionaries need prayer for perseverance. They have highs and they have sometimes long lows. God, why did you call me to the field? Where is the fruit? It's in those lonely times. They need friends and they need prayer support. And they need lots of helpers. Paul wrote about his ministry in Colossians 1.29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 50, he wrote about his ministry. God's grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It was hard work and he persevered. And because of that, God greatly rewarded him. Well, there's a fifth element. And that is missionaries are going to confront powers. Fifth, missionaries confront spiritual, evil, wicked powers when they get onto the mission field. This is the last part of verse 6 down through verse 11. It says, They found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Wow. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them and seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. You didn't think you would just waltz into a new land, proclaim the word of God, and there'd be no resistance, did you? No, there's opposition. This confrontation with the Jewish, notice, Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus forms really the main chunk of this paragraph. And that means we're supposed to learn something from it important. You know, Jews in the law of Moses were not even to dabble in the magic arts because it's all connected to demonic powers. Ironically, though, some of the Jews in the first century did dabble in magic. Even more ironically, this particular magician is named of all names, Bar-Jesus. Do you know what that means? Son of Jesus. <laughs> He's no son of Jesus. By the time you get to the end of this passage, uh, Paul's labeled him son of Satan. What is this all about? Listen, guys, this is blatant opposition to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Elymas' intent is crystal clear. He was seeking to turn away the leadership of the island, the Roman leadership, away from listening to Paul and Barnabas, away from the Christian faith that they were proclaiming. Indeed, they were opposing him. That's that verb, antithistemi. It means to stand against, to resist it. No question what they were trying to do. You know, when the gospel spread into the territory that is north of Judea, Samaria, sort of sandwiched between Judea and Galilee, we ran into another tricky guy there in Acts chapter 8. You remember him? Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. And he ended up proving to be a stumbling block to many, tapping into satanic power, even though he feigned a conversion and even was baptized in water. Well, this magician was strategically placed by the devil to keep the leadership of that island on his side and to oppose the gospel of Jesus. Sergius Paulus, a man described as a man of intelligence, a man of insight. Somehow God was working in his life and he demanded to hear. He wanted to know what was going on and God opened his eyes and opened his heart and his understanding. And as Sergius Paulus was coming into the light, Paul was unmasking this Jewish false prophet right in front of the proconsul, thus exposing him for who he truly was, not a trusted advisor at all. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who's also known as Paul, now we see his name changing, right? 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at the power here. This is an instantaneous filling of the Holy Spirit. This is not the kind of the filling or the fullness of the Holy Spirit that every believer is called to all the time that we read about in Ephesians 5.18, you know, be, being full of the Spirit, being characterized by the things of the Spirit. This was a sudden rush of power that came to Paul as a prophet and as an apostle to do something supernatural under his calling. But Saul called Paul filled with the Holy Spirit fixed his gaze on him. Man, could you imagine the penetrating gaze on him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Wow. I can imagine that room shaking with fear, with divine awe. That's quite an unmasking. Paul ripped off this man's pretense and laid bare his satanic connections. You know, really, if we had longer, this is a great mini-study of what unbelievers, when you're, when you're on social media or you go to some church that's not preaching the gospel or you read some, some book that's, not, that's really teaching a false kind of gospel and you see these people on the airwaves and radio and all of that, you really see what their strategies are. You look at what, what Paul said about this guy and you can see the same things in false teachers today. Their motivation is not to speak the truth. They're not sincere seekers of God. They're full of deceit. They're frauds. They're usually after money. There are many bad religious people out there in the world. And when the true gospel comes, they try to snuff out that gospel. Try to deter people from listening to it one way or the other. Don't go to that Bible study. Don't listen. You know, the whole Protestant movement in Europe had a hard time struggling to get the people back to the Bible. Read the Bible. Hear the Word of God for yourself. And when these religious people hinder people from hearing the gospel, they are imitating the devil. And yes, it's right to say when you act like the devil, you deserve the title sons of Satan. And the result is that God's pure ways, his straight ways, his beneficial ways, his good ways, his wise ways are perverted and twisted and people are turned all over the place rather than, rather than doing what God said that will bring life to their soul. Rather, you get perversion in justice. We see that in our land now. Perversion in sexuality. We see that in our land now. Perversion in so many different ways rather than following what God said. You know, there are spiritual powers set up in every country, every town, every city. They're all over the place. And when we send these missionaries to go out, they're going out to face an enemy. Missionaries face incessant opposition, and it comes at scary times. And they get roared at by the intimidations of the devil. And so the advancement of the gospel is slowed and missionaries can get so discouraged. They must understand what they face, and we must understand what they face, that we may fight the spiritual battle with them. Missionary work is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Don't get angry at each other. Think about the spiritual realities going on behind the scenes. But it is against the rulers, against the powers, not talking about earthly people here, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In the spiritual realms, there's wickedness. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then Paul goes on to talk about the need for every piece of spiritual armor. We must fight with the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit in hand, prepared with the gospel of peace, the hope of the helmet of salvation, all the pieces, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. That's how we fight, and we fight along with missionaries. You can't just send them to the field and forget about them. We're connected to them. We have to fight with them. And Paul, using his apostolic authority, which is not our authority, pronounced a curse on him. Look how he closed this up. Now, verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. The hand of God was against this false prophet. When you read that little phrase, the hand of God is against them, you know that's a bad thing because that was used in the Old Testament at times when God would bring diseases and pestilence and other kinds of problems upon people. It meant the hand of God was the power of God working against someone. In Exodus chapter 9 and verse 3, it refers to the pestilence in the plagues on Egypt. That was the hand of God that brought that. Does God sometimes bring judgmental diseases upon groups of people? The answer is definitively yes. And this false prophet's curse was temporary blindness. You stand there like you're an advisor that gives light to the rulers on this island. Let's show them who you really are. And he was physically blinded and literally had to have someone lead him about so he would know where to go total abject humility in front of others. That was his judgment. By the way, you know who else had temporary blindness? This guy, Saul, who earlier was on route from Jerusalem to Damascus to capture people in the way that were of the faith in Jesus and to lock them up. And Jesus met him on the way and stopped him and blinded him. And he had to be led about by the hand in Damascus until he repented of his sins and he understood what was true, and God removed that blindness from him. Maybe here there was also the holding out of the possibility that one day this foolish man would turn away from following Satan and would turn to God. We don't know if he did or not. Paul repented of his sin. Paul received his sight back. About this man we don't know, but we do know God was opposed to him. Pray for your missionaries. They fight a spiritual battle. Last, sixth and last element, missionaries do make progress. <laughs> this is great. Verse 12, you have to have this. What's the point of all of it? Why do you persevere? Why are you sent out? Why do you have a plan? Why do you do all of these things? Why do you fight spiritual battles? Verse 12, then the proconsul believed what he saw, what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Hey, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the joy of missions. This is where it all is. This is why they do what they do. When somebody believes, 
This is when the missionary gets to rejoice and throw a party along with the angelic beings that are up there. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, it says, those angels rejoice over one sinner who repents more than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. They had results. This main leading Roman personage believed. That is the same term that is used in the book of Acts to show someone coming to saving faith. It was used in Acts 4.4. Many of those who had heard the message believed. Acts 9.42. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Acts 13.39. And through Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Belief brings salvation. Now, yes, the miracle demonstrating the power of God helped this man to perceive the power behind the teaching about Jesus. It helped him to come to faith. He saw the miracle, but please notice, it says the proconsul was amazed at the teaching of the Lord, at the teaching of the Lord, the teaching, the didache of the Lord. You know, that is the same response that happened when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 28. It says the crowds who heard him on that hill were amazed at his teaching. He taught as one who had authority. And here, they were, he, this man was amazed at the teaching Barnabas and Saul brought. What power it had. The instruction was amazing. Jesus died on a Roman cross and he is now the savior of the world. Wow, he fulfilled intricate prophecy written centuries before his life. Wow, he was risen on the third day and seen by hundreds on multiple times and touched and, eat and ate with him. Wow, amazed. Sometimes there are not enough people saved in a mission's work and it gets discouraging. And there's not enough to really start a new church but the missionaries stick with it. They keep working on it. Maybe they started with a home Bible study and they continue to be faithful with that Bible study week after week, inviting people, praying, planting seeds, watering, seeing what God will do, just being faithful. It may be years before they see results, but they stick with it. They keep working at it. I remember a very helpful mission seminar I went to at a previous church when I was a younger man, and he raised the question, how does somebody know if they could do missions work when they get on the mission field? Now, this is even before you evaluate your calling and all of that. Just thinking about it, if I were there, would I be able to do missions work? And the answer that was given was so simple and I think so biblical. That missionary said, well, missions is this, making friends with people in another culture and inviting them to your home and having a Bible study with them. Can you do that? Can you make friends with people, be friendly to them, kind to them, and gather them around and teach the Bible and Bible lessons to them, get them to open their Bible? He talked about a Bible study he had started in Spain, and, and the people he was trying to reach all trusted their Roman Catholic translation, not the Protestant one. But week after week, as they studied the Psalms together and talked about the character of God and His holiness and justice and mercy, just to have the proper understanding of God, one day, one of the men grabbed the two Bibles and put them side by side and realized, you know, a lot of these are saying exactly the same thing. And he began to understand that what was being taught by this missionary was true. 
Can you make friends? Can you get them in the Bible and study it? If you can, you have the essential tools of what a missionary really has to use along with his prayers and his godly life. Some of you could be doing that in our country right now, even with internationals. Once the virus is over, I guess, you could be inviting in, if you speak Spanish, having a Spanish Bible study in your home. It could be Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese. It could be anything. You could be faithful to a missionary-like Bible study in your home. You don't need any special permission from the elders to do that. Just tell us about it. We'll support you in it. We want to see people reaching out to others. Many internationals are here, and we could have so much more missions work right here from people all over the world. The goal then is to bring all those that hear the word and believe and get them into the church. Get them baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it says in the Great Commission, and get them into the local church so they can be part of the body of Christ as well. You remember the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them, to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. More teaching, better teaching, establishes all of the believers better in the faith so they're not deceived by other teaching when it comes along. Listen, missionaries make progress and missionaries love to share their progress with churches back home. And what a beautiful thought to conclude with. God gives those special gifts to these missionaries, the joy of seeing someone come to faith that they may talk back to their home churches and write about it and give testimony to the grace of God. Look what God's grace is doing so that we would read their progress reports and rejoice with them. You know what one of the greatest fears of a missionary is, is that when they're on the field and they have all these sacrifices and the joy of doing what they did and they write about it, is anybody even reading it? Does anybody even care? What a lonely thought. No, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to stand with our missionaries. We have a missionary family coming home soon. And not just our missions committee, but our whole church needs to learn to care for our missionaries better. I hope walking some of these steps with these true missionaries have helped you to understand the life of a missionary. Christ is our Savior, and He is our God. May you, O Lord, drive your truth hard into our hearts, and may we soften with love for our missionaries and for one another. O Lord God, go with us as we go, Lord, in the power of your Spirit. Amen.